Uh, welcome everyone to the Do Good Podcast. I am Rob Watson and in today I'm speaking with James Bogue who is kindly coming back on the show for a second time. I actually spoke to him a year to the day um, last year. Um, which it happens to be a day after my birthday both times. Um, James has got, you know, we had a truly fascinating conversation back, there, back then. Uh, James is a yoga teacher. Um, and that was basically, I think it was all about his approach to becoming a whole human being. You know, his yoga movement, um, his meditation, his storytelling, his kirtan. He's got quite a different approach to what you might expect from a yoga teacher. So I had a truly fascinating conversation. Um, we've stayed friends from it as well. We were friends before it, but our friendship has deepened since then. And um, I'm great, really grateful to speak to him again. I think it's really nice that we're chatting at this point where like a year has happened between, it, it was just before everything was getting locked down. Like, and now we're potentially coming out of it. So it'd be nice to get James's um, reflection. But first of all, James, thanks for coming back on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Rob. Great to see you. And yeah, uh, I'll extend my birthday wishes another extra day. But yeah, good to see you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. So what would you, since, what would you say has been, say, the biggest lesson for you since, you know, that you've took in the last year? You know, and I know that's quite a, you know, you could go anywhere with it, but I'm just interested to get your thoughts. Mm. I think the thing that I would say is that really the biggest lesson for me is back to basics. Um, one thing I feel about the last year is it's really, it's not so much that things have really changed, but certain things have been amplified. And um, so coming back to basics, what that means to me is like, for example, when I was a teenager, so it's like when I took my GCSE exam. So in England, we have these exams you take when you're 16. And after the exams, like I was just basically free for a couple of weeks and you know, finished the exams and it wasn't started any summer work or going away anywhere. And I remember there was a test match England and Australia on the television, like cricket, which you're going to watch all day long. My mate lived up the road. <laughs> we sometimes watch the test match and chat. And, and I watched, and my parents received, they used to get a newspaper delivered at that time. And I read the newspaper because I had been told at school, you know, like, oh, you should read the newspaper, you should keep up on current affairs. I had more time to read the newspaper and I started reading it. And I just noticed, I just felt terrible. And this was like the summer, it was now with my mates, and I was reading the newspaper every day and I think that's what's making me feel so down and then I looked at the newspaper and I thought isn't it strange what is included and what is left out who decides that why is it that there's so much bad news and then I you know in later years I so I stopped reading the newspaper and you know I could keep up with the news by just consuming much much slower doses and I recognized there's not a lot of news really it's the same old type of story the same old type of narrative repeated again and again and again Years later, when I was teaching in the university, I, you know, I had to, I took like a weekly news magazine just to, we'd use it in artic like articles to work with the students and just to keep abreast of things. But in the last year, the news was directly affecting what I could do, where I could go, how I could work, things like this. But I realized it's not so different, you know, the news, what is the news? It's like peddling misery. <laughs> and um, 
it's not very good for your health to really be um, exposed to all of that. And so I had this way of living where I would kind of keep my antenna open to be aware of what was going on without exposing myself too much to what I perceived as um, Let's say, I don't know the right way to describe it, like a kind of redundant narrative. It's like it's the same thing as being reinforced. And one thing that I notice gets reinforced. So I had the experience, I lived in lots of different countries. And sometimes I was in, in places where there was, things were happening that made the international news. So when I lived in Thailand, there were various coups, <laughs> for example. And my grandmother, um, Sometimes would, she would hear of news, oh, when I lived in India, there was, I was living in the south of India, and there was some terrorist incident in Mumbai, for example, and my grandmother was, you know, she thinks that, oh, it's a dangerous place to be. But, you know, well, it's the same as anywhere, Grandma, you know, so there's, you know, terrible things happen, but most of the time there's lots of wonderful things happening. And when you go outside and meet people, you realize, wow, I can make my own news. I can have my own new experiences by talking to people I've never met before and by trying to look at the world with freshness and trying to learn from these different experiences. And you know, one thing that also I experienced in India, also in Thailand and Japan when I lived there, was how sometimes I'd be in a situation where I had the quite strong visceral experience of either myself or people I was with being looked at through an eye of prejudice because somebody, let's say a foreigner was doing something that, and they didn't know they were doing this, but they were doing something that was looked at in a certain way within that culture. And that kind of made me think, well, when do I do that? When do I look out at reality through a lens of the ideas that I have kind of considered to be normal? that often they're not. It's just a heap of conditioned ideas that have somehow congealed in my awareness. So I'm sorry, I'm rambling a bit here. I think in the last year, what I've recognized, coming back to basics is, I think, yeah, in the, the way I was starting to talk there, I was kind of, what do I really mean? Let's keep it basic. It means take responsibility for my own experience that there are all these narratives out there that are just thought forms, really. But if I come back to my own experience, for example, we can put a lot of, as human beings, we can put a lot of our, we can invest a lot in things being a certain way. And when those things don't work out that way, we can get very resistant. But we can also invest in actually being present. So I remember in the 2008 financial crash time, I was visiting some friends in Thailand and the, the husband <laughs> came downstairs and he said, oh, I've lost all this money because some of his investments had crashed. And then his wife said, yeah, that's why I keep investing in the account that never depreciates. And she was talking about her meditation practice and her spiritual practice. 
and how that actually connects her to something that doesn't depreciate. So coming back to basics for me means really, where do I have agency? And these, there's these questions that I find really, really powerful as kind of compasses to live by. And they're question, I call them yoga questions. So one is, where am I in this? Another is, what's the truth here really? And the third is, why am I doing what I'm doing? Or where am I acting from? So the first one, where am I in this? I got this from my friend Bill, who was a US Marine captain. And he got it from Ajahn Chah, who was a very well-known Buddhist teacher in Thailand last century. And Bill was visiting Ajahn Chah. And he was taken into the place where Ajahn Chah was receiving visitors. And then a village woman came kind of storming in and she was really irate and she was complaining about her husband. And Ajahn Chah says to her, and where are you in this? And then the woman says, no, it's not about me. It's about my good for nothing husband. And she carries on. And then Ajahn Chah says, and where are you in this? And then one more time, she, you know, she goes on to this great litany of the husband's faults and shortcomings. And then Ajahn Chah again, he says, and where are you in this? And then this woman, she's like, they said he was a great monk, he's an idiot, he can't even listen. She goes storming out. And then Ajahn Chah looks at Bill and Bill looks at Ajahn Chah and he says, well, I got what I came for. <laughs> And he got this question and he says to me, you know, he says, I, I, I came to realize, you know, my capacity as a human being to delude myself is hard to quantify. I have this amazing capacity to, to kind of just get lost in my own ideas and to delude myself. Bill uses, he uses different language. He was a US Marine captain, so <laughs> he phrases it differently. <laughs> but this idea that I can get lost in all of these ideas, they're really just a swirl of things that come and go. So in the teachings of yoga, again and again is emphasized this idea, when we're a human, we're always gonna be experiencing comings and goings, change. But we also have the opportunity to experience something that is always there, something that is everlasting, which is this presence. And so I think for me, the last years, like, Remember that, keep coming back to that as best as you can. And when I encounter situations that I find particularly grievous or upsetting or disheartening or whatever it might be, these are opportunities for me to tune in more to that steady center and recognize that I can be steadier than I might be in the past. Like it. Good response. I think you're a vast, vast question. <laughs> I know, I did, didn't I? I, um, I stole that off someone else. I heard someone else said that recently. I was like, that's a good one, that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask James that one. Um, but I got what I wanted. Um, well, I didn't know what I was going to get, but I got um, more than what I was expecting. Just to pick up on a few things um, around, say, the news, like one of the things I've spoken about many times in this podcast is around the reason why I do this podcast is to focus, have much more focus on the good and what's going on yeah. than to focus on the bad. You just have to switch on the radio to hear the news every hour or 
pick up, open the front cover of a paper or put on BBC News or shit. And it, there's not ever been one time where I've left that and I've felt empowered from what I've heard. I've, mm-hmm. I've never felt like, oh, that's really good information. I can now action some of that in my life and yeah. it's going to better my life. No, actually, in fact, it's just going to trigger fear and yeah. make it feel like, like you said, um, like in Thailand, when there was issues and your grandmother were getting in touch. I remember when there was the riots over in London and Manchester a few years ago and people who are new in America were saying, oh, it must be terrible over there. It's like, no, it's fine. You know, it's happening in such a tiny little pocket. Yeah. Um, like what's London got six, seven million people. I don't know the particular figure and it affects such a small thing. Yet the way the, the lens goes on it, everything gets magnified. And I think really what we've been living in for the past year, obviously it's, it's real. What's going on is real, but there's the fear behind it doesn't mm. balance out with the reality. Yeah, I agree very much, Robin. It's, I remember it was probably, well, it's more than a year ago now I was in India and it was strange at the beginning of last year. So I was in India, January, February, more or less. And I think I left India end of February, at which point there had been one reported coronavirus case, one in a country of more than a billion people. But I don't watch the news, but that, there'd been nothing else in the news feed for like two months. And my, my landlord was really worried about it. And I'm like, well, why are you worried about it? And one of my teachers over there, he, he, he shared this story and reminded us of this story, which is, I think, really a useful one to remember. And it's a story, I think it's features in Paramahansa Yogananda's Autobiography of Yogi. Um, but it's, an, you know, it's a traditional story. And the story goes that the smallpox virus was rampaging through the land. And it arrived in the, you know, in the environs, in, it arrived close to the, this village where a great sage, a great rishi was meditating. And the great rishi is aware of this approaching negative threat <laughs> and he stops the smallpox uh disease and he says whoa, whoa what are you doing here and you can't come and, and, and you know ravage this village which is you know where i do my meditation you know get the hence can i not come here and smallpox says no 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 I'm, I'm sorry i didn't want to come here but there are two people in this village their time has come you know it's, it's time for them to leave you know the Lord of Death will be coming to collect them and take them off to the next realm in a couple of days' time. And I've been the one appointed to facilitate that trans that transition. And the Rishi says, very well. And he says, yeah, I'll only take two and then I'll be off and I'll leave the rest of the village untouched. And so what happens is the Rishi says, okay. And the Rishi goes back to his cave meditating. And it does happen. And after a few days, there are two fatalities. And then a couple more weeks go by and 200 people are dead. And the Rishi is aware of this and he's not happy at all. So he summons smallpox and he says, how dare you? Not only did you kill more people than you said you were, but you lied to me and deceived me. And the smallpox disease says, no, no, I, I didn't. I only took the first two, just like I said I would. The rest died from fear. And so one of my teachers in India shared this story 
last February. And it's just, there's so much truth in this. I remember it was probably about, I don't know how many years back now, but maybe 10 years ago, I was at a conference in India on uh, the power of the mind in relation to health. And the keynote speaker was a, he's quite actually a famous medical doctor in India. He's called Dr. B.M. Hegde. Really interesting guy, very down to earth. But he's also worked at the CERN Research Center in Harvard University. So he's a very, you know, kind of qualified person. But his initial training was as a, a family physician. But then he's gone on into all sorts of other scientific research and health research. And he was saying, he says, you want to be healthy? He says, this is the basic recipe for health as far as I'm aware. He says, you know, he says, whenever there's an epidemic, you know, like, he says, it never doesn't kill everybody ever. He says, sometimes, you know, we've, we've seen this happen sometimes. There's an outbreak of malaria in some town or city. It never affects everybody. So what is it that makes it affect some people more than others? And Hegde was saying the power of your mind in the sense the power of the, um, how receptive you are to those fearful negative vibrations is gonna have a really significant impact in how you respond to potential threats. He says, you know, the body's got this amazing capacity to process as it were, and to eliminate um, lots of things that don't help us. So for example, I'm, I'm, I'm conscious I'm weaving story into story here, but like in the Indian tradition, as well as us having these five sense powers that we are all familiar with, we're also reminded that we have five action powers. So our speech and our communication, our manual capacities to pick things up and put things down, which doesn't just include physical things, but I can also pick up and put down those most dangerous things called beliefs. And we've got our movement, locomotion capacities. We've got our creative capacities. So you've experienced this in the last year, Rob, you and your partner, you've created a whole new life. And how amazing is this? But we also can recreate ourselves. So we have a recreational capacity. And think of the word recreation. When we play and do things in ways that we haven't done before, we make new synaptic connections. We kind of expand the circuitry of our brains that's through the whole body, through the nervous system. And so we can kind of recreate our understanding of who we are. But one of the power, we have the power, which is called payu in Sanskrit, of elimination, excretion. We can get rid of things that we do not need. This doesn't just mean going to the toilet, yeah? This also means we have the capacity to shed and leave behind things that no longer serve us. And so our immune system, what an amazing thing it is. We can stabilize and adapt so well, almost especially when we get out of our own way, by which I mean when we let our mind not interfere. Because the mind, this is one of the things that I would say has also been amplified for me in the last year. This tendency of the arrogant human mind to want to think that we can control nature, which is just to make, no, look at history, this never works out. Hubris is inevitably followed by nemesis. <laughs> and so the human being who thinks, oh, I'm the big I am, I'm in control, is not a genuine scientist. A genuine scientist knows I do not know. And with that spirit of not knowing, that's how I look at and interact with reality. 
So we have this capacity to leave things behind that no longer serve us. But Hector was saying, you know, he says, if you want to be healthy, get outside every day. It was in a warm place. He says, walk every day. Walk barefoot on the earth if you can. So obviously if you're in the, like we are in the north of England in the winter, you might not walk barefoot, but get outside in the elements. Talk to your neighbors. He says, laugh. Every day, smile, laugh. So practice gratitude. You know, like when you wake up in the morning, like think, wow, ah, I'm grateful for this gift of life. And this comes back to the coming back to basics. It's like, wow, I am breathing. And isn't this amazing that I have this bodily vehicle that can do all these things. And maybe it can't do them as well as I might like to based on some crazed idea that has been propagated at me through all these unrealistic medias, like, for example, in the women's magazines. You know, when I taught at the university, the majority of the students were female students. And sometimes women would be the topic in the reading course or the writing course. And one time we were talking about women's magazines, as a misery magazine, you know, that they show you this, the woman should, she should look like a supermodel. She should, in the bedroom, she should be like some high class, uh, what's the word, courtesan. She should, in the gym, she should be like some Olympic athlete. In the kitchen, she should be like master, like Nadia Hussein or Nigella Lawson, you know, and she should be this kind of top of the top in every domain of life. And never mind, you know, actually just be a regular human being. But Hegde says, no, just connect to reality here and now. Smile, laugh, talk to your neighbors, get outside. And he says, eat real food and drink real water. That's the recipe to be healthy. And he said, the thing you do not, and, and the other thing he says, never go to the doctor when, unless you feel unwell. He says, the health check, he said, this is, a, no, this is not me saying this. He said, the health check, he says, don't ever go for that. <laughs> He says, because the mentality of the health check, he says, you are a unique human being. The configuration that you are is not like the person next to you. We know this. It's just common sense. But he says, you know, for example, and he gave the example of two famous Indian people, one of whom was very, very short and one of whom was very, very tall. And so he said, by the reasoning, which is completely fallacious, of the standard health check, that very tall man, well, we'd have to chop his legs off because obviously the, the level of his height is, is very dangerous to be at that extreme. And the very short person, we better put him on the rack because if he's that short, oh, he can't do well. And he gave another example of two famous Indians who had unusual um, blood pressure count, blood pressure levels. One of them was Gandhi. So one and very high, one and very low. And he says, according to the paradigm of standardized health, these people would be said to be unhealthy when they were not. They were in their own unique homeostatic healthy balance. And so I think there's just, it's easy to forget this when we're bombarded with all of this information that pumps up fear. Whereas if we're able to come back to basics and get more in touch with our own amazing intelligence, then we're much more fortified to navigate the unexpected from a steadier place. And after that, it disappoints me how I felt like the way that the press were. I remember being when I first came back to England last year, I saw on the front cover of 
supposedly reputable, I wouldn't say, uh, yeah, reputable, they've got a reputation of being peddling things that aren't very helpful, but they're perceived as being quality news outlets or news papers. And they were putting these ridiculous headlines, like oh, two and a half million of us will be hospitalized and things like this, which is just speculation. And I don't think it's a very sensible um, approach to speculate with such fear-inducing hyperbole. And I really wonder if the media's approach had been much more positive, more health-oriented rather than running away and fear-oriented, maybe would have been able to navigate this in a very different way. 100%. And just picking up on that, um, you think of the, the media and the perception. Imagine, and I think about the same with the NHS and um, the healthcare system around the world and in this country. And they've just recently done this advertising campaign over winter. And I've just caught it a few times and, and I've been out and about. And it's so fear-mongering. People have already been made to feel bad enough the past year. They don't need to be for made to feel guilty that they're going to be passing something on to someone else. They're already locked down, you know, and they had the most horrendous imagery and stuff. I'm like, I'm like, where is the national campaign about vitamin D? You know, why, why, why is not that pushed mm-hmm. across? Now they do have it on the NHS website, but they didn't know. There's no, there's no major campaigns behind yeah. that. Um, and I, I see, I see that, and and then of course the media, and I think part of the media, it, it, I keep thinking this now. Sometimes I hear stuff, and it, it's a bit like shame on them for putting that information on people. Like how much they're affecting people's thing. Like one thing that always helps me, and sometimes I share stuff, and I, I have to be careful about sharing some stuff when I do it on my social media platforms because you're always going to trigger some people, um, and sometimes my nervous system might not be in a great enough place to, to, to get all the backlash um, at, at times, depending. Um, sometimes I'm just like, yeah, I'm going to stay in my strength and like, I'll say whatever I'm going to say. But other times, you know, I don't feel like that. But in terms of when you actually look, what helps me with anything, and I've said this even before COVID, is what are the odds of something? What are the statistics? You know, when you strip all away the headlines, so many people have died today, what are the actual true statistics? And then weighing it up and go, what's the risk for me? And then I want to make the choice, my own informed choice on stuff. So for instance, at the moment, we've got something like, there's almost 8 billion people on the planet. And I think as of about as we're speaking, there's been about 2.8 million that have, have died from COVID. That's a, that is a lot of people. However, it's 0.04% of the global population. It's still a lot but 0.04%. And when you look at the media, the media would make that out like that's 4%, which would be 100 times worse. Mm. And when we look at, say, the Spanish flu epidemic that came in the early 20th century, that was estimated to kill 100 million people. And there was 1.8 billion people on the planet then. So that's something like over 5%. Now that really does feel like something to worry about. That would be one of your Nate, one in 20 people. That would probably be 10 of your close friends or people that you know. 
And back then as well, the more than half of the deaths were people, young adults between 20 and 40 from the Spanish flu. From COVID, the average age of the death is over 80. I think it's something like 80.6 years. And the interesting thing is how the average life expectancy of someone in the UK is 81. Mm. So it's very sad that these people are passing away. But it appears that on the whole, maybe four to five months of their life is potentially being cut short on average. Um, now, don't get me wrong, I, I feel empathy for people that have died, that are losing their lives. Anyone, you know, I know some friends who's, who's um, they're, they're, it was like COVID-related linked, you know, they had other under, underlying health conditions. So I feel for them, if that's the thing that's been the straw that's broken the camel back, I really do. I just wonder about how the the effects that it's having on people, like there's, there's data out there from very well-respected scientists and researchers to suggest that the lockdowns are causing more deaths than COVID will. Mm. You know, supposedly it's pushed 150 million people into extreme poverty around the world. How many of them will then just die because of that? Mm. Um, and then when you look on the other side of it, you've got... Um, the rich have gained something like half a trillion in wealth during the pandemic. Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, um, and, and the likes. Now, if I was to be a cynical person, I would say that maybe they don't particularly want the lockdown to end because who benefit, who's benefit from this? Now, I know this is like... It's good that what we're talking about is because I think like anything, I think it's important to point things out that maybe don't feel off in the world. You know, shine a bit of light on them, but then focus on the positives. What we can do as individuals, which what you're talking about through the yoga practices, but some of the things about what could we do each day outside, fresh air, good water, have a laugh, companionship. That's what life, you know, life's about. Um, yeah, if you just... Because it's interesting for me where I live. I work from home anyway, except for like you said before, people might can say, well, you can't go and do them things. When I open the window in the morning, the same birds are singing that were mm. singing a year ago. Same weather, pretty much, maybe a little bit wetter, a little cold sometimes. But you know what, what really truly changes? It's just, it's more just perception and it's, you could say it's more like the human ego as well, which always catastrophizes worst case scenario. So maybe when we're putting the news on, that's what we're seeing more than it. We're just seeing the collective ego's worst case scenario, but that's yeah. not. <laughs> and there's something that people say that, you know, we're hardwired evolutionarily to be very cautious of potential threat because that was such an important mechanism to help us survive for tens, maybe hundreds of thousands of years. And so it's very easy for us to apportion greater uh, significance to troubling, harmful, fear-inducing experiences than all the wonderful things. And, you know, if, if so, for example, with snakes and uh, big cats and things like this, the fear response that is triggered by, oh, there's a predator that is, you know, 
gives us the adrenaline to exit the scene um, nimbly, as efficiently as we might. But these days, the you know the types of threats that we you know it's not like oh we hear we see all this catastrophic news and we don't run we dwell on it and talk to other people about it and it it kind of you know amasses. And I think this is one of the reasons why it's really really helpful to make a practice of of gratitude and of celebration to remind ourselves of the beauty of existence. So just recently, I've discovered in a, a very inspiring place near here uh, where people are doing amazing work. And maybe when the restrictions are lifted, I may be able to do some work with them. But I went to see the place. And I'm like, wow, it's just this beautiful room with lots of things that people can use to, to music place. And people can just do, it's like a therapy center. Wow, it's just such a beautiful thing to be able to, that this is available for people and hopefully it'll be available much more freely again soon. And as I was going there to see it, it's a little bit of a drive away. I had, I was playing Bob Marley on, as I was driving and singing along. And I was just thinking like, ah, oh, this is the thing. So I think I'm also feeling the, as the days are lengthening, I'm feeling that upsurge of spring energy and I'm really enjoying it, appreciating that. And today in India is a big festival day. And it just kind of reminded me, like in India, sometimes people say, you know, it's every day is a festival and you're never very far away from a big celebration, a big festival. And in the, in the yoga of Kashmir Shaivism, there's a, there's a hymn that I sometimes sing and it talks about making my life a great festival of worship. And if we have that attitude, so I mean, I've lived in different places and I've seen that in some countries, especially places with a warmer climate where people live outside much more. And so it's more conducive for this spontaneous sharing and having these very pleasant, unexpected, spontaneous interactions. It's easier to stay connected to that gratitude for life and this sense of awe and wonder and appreciation of turning of the seasons and the abundance of mother earth and can also, like when we're joyful, I think it, it's easier for us to then kind of overflow and express our appreciation for life in ways that encourage others to get into that vibration, if you like, that mindset, that state of relationship to each, to ourselves, to each other, to the environment, that then makes it easier to respond creatively to challenges. So I think when we get trapped in a fearful mindset, we can feel disempowered very easily and it can just become down-pressing, down-pressing. So I was talking about Bob Marley, so I was like, you know, <laughs> never mind being down-pressed, get up, stand up. This is what yoga says. Remember, you are a sovereign being. You have this amazing gift of conscious awareness. So if I make an effort to tune into that and cultivate that, then when I'm enjoying the beautiful spring sunshine on those days when it comes through, I can really enjoy it and it kind of fortifies me for the gray days. When I celebrate the gifts of life and I really just take a step back and think about all of these amazing things that I have received, like where was I when this reality of my own physical existence was being brought into being? I had nothing to do with that. This has come to me as a gift and what an amazing gift it is. 
So when I cultivate gratitude, it makes it that bit easier to then navigate challenges. And so I do think that perhaps, like you said, Rob, the global human ego, we've become a little bit disconnected, well, and maybe more than a little bit disconnected from reality. We've become a bit more caught up in these narratives and these, let's say, clusters of thought forms or ideas and a bit estranged from our own real power and wisdom. I just to give an example of that, I, I remember speaking to a friend last year who uh, she does work to help you know, empower people. And one of her friends was saying to her, oh, I think I need to go and get an allergy test. So my friend says, why? Well, whenever I eat dairy, I feel, I feel really bad. And she says, so why do I need to get a test? And it's like, if you always feel bad when you eat it, maybe you just try not eating it for a while and, and then maybe introduce again and say, oh yeah, I never thought of that. It's like somehow our body's teaching us all the time, our sensory intelligence, we've got all these amazing gifts right here in this microcosm of our bodily conscious vehicle. And if we start to work with that, we can kind of realize, oh yeah, I am the sovereign of my experience. So yoga really emphasized, like coming back to basics again, it's like you are the sovereign of your experience. And whatever situation we find ourselves, and even if we're in the most confined, restricted position, there is a part of ourselves that nobody else can touch. And how we meet whatever life throws at us, throws at us is up to us. We might not be given the situation that we might have, you know, ordered from the menu if we'd have had a, you know, any choice, but we can determine how we meet it. And I think that's a really useful thing to keep cultivating and keep reminding ourselves of. Where am I in this and what, what can I do and how can I respond? You know, they talk about it throughout all the spirit traditions through the ages, you know, bigger the challenge, greater the opportunity. And when there is confinement, like you think of a game, like children playing. I was really heartened the other day I walked past the local school and it was playtime and the kids were playing and they still know how to play. <laughs> They've been denied that chance by, I would say, maybe, maybe misguided ideas, but the children were able to be playing in the playground again and they know, still know how to play. And when kids make games, they make rules. And the rules create a restriction. And within that restriction, beautiful things can happen. Creativity can happen. It's like, for example, like a sport, like in tennis, you've got to hit the ball within the lines. And that confinement means that when these great tennis players play, it can be this thing of beauty because that confinement creates this possibility for virtuosity and like all this beautiful craft and artistry to emerge so yeah and coming yeah. back to that basics of like we are sovereign beings yeah and well that that's to be a sovereign i mean can you imagine like Robert, what would it be like to be the king or the queen of a country oh that's not a pleasant task no what a burden but so similarly to be the king or queen of this bodily vehicle, it means taking responsibility for the whole field. So, it's, and this is the basic you know, yoga practice. I've got to look 
in ways I've not looked before. I've got to keep checking on the whole of myself, you know, my emotional reality, my mental reality, my physical reality, my energetic reality. Take responsibility for the whole system. Yeah. And maybe it's like, oh, there's some parts of my life. And I think this happens generally for most of us in the modern world is that in our day-to-day life, there are certain parts of ourselves that get a lot of practice and exercise and we trust them. So I guess, like I know, for example, like just the conversation we've had, Rob, you're much more savvy in the realm of tech than I am. And you're a designer. So there's some things that you've, you've given so much thought to, you've got so much expertise in you. For you, you can trust those things easily. I've got a friend who's a professional dancer. He knows his body really, really well. He trusts his body. You know, he's like done, you know, he throws people around all the time. So if he's going to do some help his dad on the farm, he can make a good decision about whether he should pick up that tree trunk or not, whether it's good for his back or not. He's really tuned in. Somebody who sits in a desk all day, he goes to help dad on the farm and even, you know, big weights around, might get a nasty shock while they're lifting the item on me the next day. But there are other parts of ourselves that we don't employ so regularly. There are some parts of ourselves that kind of get left in the shadows. They get neglected. And so yoga, about which is always about including, gathering, unifying, harmonizing the whole field, it asks us to look in those places where previously we might not have liked to look or even dared to look. And so it, it takes courage, right? Sovereignty, responsibility, courage. You can't separate and they all go together. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, 100%. But just one thing about, just about the courage thing, it's like when we practice that gratitude, we encourage ourselves. We do fortify ourselves for the tests that will come. Yeah. Yeah. One thing as well, I have a journal and I haven't written it as much since the little ones arrived because sure. <laughs> I've, I've just about, I've just about got back to getting my hour of reading in at night before I go to sleep. So I'm grateful I've got that back. Um, but what I would do is not only would I write the things I'm grateful for and just such, such, such simple things, you know, sometimes you might not feel in a great place, but some of the smallest things, but what I also write is what are my free highlights from the day? And it's really interesting. And I'll do, me and Ruth will ask ourselves each before we go to bed, what are your free highlights for today? Nice. And it would, some days, depending, you know, we could be on holiday and you could have loads of, you know, but but just now be like, well, you know, it was picking Stella up and it was seeing a smile or it would be that time when we had a cup of tea earlier on. It, it's just a very small little thing. It's like you were talking about, it's it's those, it's the ordinariness of life yet that's the things that you remember the most and actually bring, give you the most joy and, and, and thing. And to have that focus on that more, it's just, well, like you say, it changes your state of being, it changes your vibration. It shifts you away from the negative thought patterns. You know, I think they say, do we have, is it 80,000 thoughts a day? Most of our actions are, is it 95% of our actions are triggered from the subconscious, from our past experiences. If we want to, we almost have to reprogram ourselves. If we've been thinking a certain way for, say, a decade or more, we have to reprogram our mind with, flood it with joy, with the good stuff, with the simple stuff. 
And just from that, it takes you out of that place, that place of mind, that place of thing and being like, oh yeah, it's pretty good, isn't it? And every single day, I always, what I always like about with Eckhart Tolle's teachings as well, he says, even in the toughest of times, if you're present in the moment, it's fine. Mm. Unless you're in extreme pain mm. or something, you know, something really, really tragic has happened, but nine, 99.9% of the time, in that present moment, there's nothing to worry about. Mm. It's just a perception. You know, have you lost your job? Are you going to lose money? It's just your mind will just take you to those places. Um, but I'm, you know, I'm glad you actually mentioned Yogananda before because I'm actually just finishing his his autobiography. That's the mm-hmm. book. It's interesting. I've had it on my bedside table for about two years and I had another book in front of it. And Ruth said to me, oh, can you pass me that book that was next to it? So, oh, no, oh, she just picked it up and reading it. I walked into the bedroom and I just saw Yogananda's eyes just like staring at me. <laughs> and it was phenomenal. It was unbelievable. It's like as if he was saying, Read, start reading me now. Yeah. And um, and you you recollected on the stories before from the book, and there's just so many. And when you read that, and I think it's um, George Harrison from the Beatles, he will he used to give this book out to loads of people, and he said, yeah. and his term would he would give it to people when they need to be regrooved, you know, they need to tap back in. And the thing for me is that's come from anything from the last year is for us to remember who we truly are to get back to our roots and i know i've mentioned a few things early on like sometimes i'll get frustrated i'll see stuff i'll get triggered now i don't think certain things weigh up but the real there's been so many blessings for me the past 12 months not just becoming a father but actually just having much more reflection time like i've been i almost took basically the past six years six years ago i took a 180 degree turn in my career my career path before that was grow, get bigger, employ more staff, earn more money. And I've taken a complete turn with, with that. And it's sending me, instead of me being perceived to be how I am on the outside world, it's me going into my inside world. And by going in, that's where I'm going to get all the love and joy and that I require. And you realize that you no longer need the satisfaction from others or appreciation from us to say that you're doing well. We get it from school, from childhood. Um, That's beautiful, Robin. I mean, that's to me, that's just, that type of example gives me such hope because, you know, you just, it's a microcosmic example of this, this, I would say, deluded or false paradigm that satisfaction, it's like the myth of future happiness. You know, if I keep getting more, then I'll be all right which is, we know it's a lie, but it's a lie that somehow seems to, it still has its tent, its hooks in us, you know? But the idea of how to unhook myself is step into present fulfillment and realize that to be fully here, it, there's an, if I can muster the courage to do that, then the allure of these things that just come and go it automatically is dissipated because I'm experiencing a fullness here with these simple things. But I liked one, one thing that echoed for me in what you said before is that the idea of like regrooving, yeah? Because I remember a little less than a year ago when basically 
we were invited to stop. <laughs> and I noticed that, for example, in the realm of yoga teaching, almost <laughs> there was this frantic move to, oh, let's start teaching on Zoom kind of thing. And one thing I've been trying to do over the last year is heed the invitation that nature is offering me. And, you know, I, I've been teaching online and feel very, very grateful for that. It's been wonderful to be able to continue exploring with groups of people. Um, but thinking, hmm, there has been this invitation to just pause and, you know, check in and recalibrate. And sometimes I use this image when I'm teaching. It's like there's this term in... in Sanskrit. Samskritam means well-made or well-done. And there are these things called samskaras, it's the same root word. It means a well-established pattern or a well-established habit, like these grooves that we run in. And obviously habits are really helpful in many ways. They save us a lot of time and energy, but they can also be, um, they can get obsolete and they can kind of get in our own way as well. So they can be useful, they can be not so useful. And what I kind of noticed for myself is that there are certain types of situation where it's like, I just, it's like the needle hits the groove and that song plays in you know, my way of operating. So it's like I'm predictable jukebox. Now, I don't really want to go around through life in a predictable jukebox. I'd rather be like the master improvisational Indian, you know, musician. So I've done the work to know myself well, and I can draw on the appropriate supports when I need them rather than just going into autopilot. So to come out of the groove that's really well established, that groove is like, a, it becomes like a valley. And when we're down in the valley, Okay. Do you remember that Bruce Springsteen song, The River? I come from down in the valley when, Mr. When You're Young, they bring you up to do like your daddy dance. It's like when you're down in the valley, like there's all of this weight of the way it was before. This is all we know. So in the valley, our perspective is very limited. It's a bit like that story, some of the Indian story of the frog who lives in the well. And if you know this story, so the frog who lives in a well, it's quite a big well. And then one day another frog comes along and this frog who visits has come from the ocean. And so the ocean knowing frog calls in and the well dwelling frog says, oh, hello, where are you from? He says, oh, I'm from the ocean. Oh, what's that like? And so the ocean dwelling frog says, hmm, the ocean is vast and the well the well-dwelling frog says, what does vast mean? And uh, the ocean, the frog from the ocean says, well, it's kind of like bigger than big, really distant, wide ranging. And so the, the frog who lives in the well says, what, like from here to that wall? And the frog from the ocean is like, um, no, no, much, much further. And then what, 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 from here to up there? And the frog from the ocean, no, no, much, much further. And the frog who lives in the well, like, further than that. And it's almost like he cannot compute that information. 
And I think this is what I experienced. When I'm in a groove, like one of these well-established patterns, it can be like I'm in this valley. And in the valley, there's a lot to see in the valley. It's big, it's vast, there's so much, there's so much variation of color and there's other different plants and there's other species that live down here. But if I'm able to get out of the groove and climb out of the valley, I can see, oh wow. <laughs> it's a bit like the well and the ocean. There's a lot going on in the well. It's a microcosm, there's so much. But if I can step out, then such vast possibilities are there. So. I like the idea of like, yeah, I might have grown up, and this is true, actually true, yeah, I grew up on uh, Top of the Pops and the Top 40 on a Sunday evening, and I listened to all those songs. Now, and when I grew up, we had a record play, you know, you put the needle in the groove. So if I put like the Beatles on the record player, I'm going to hear, like, for example, I'm going to hear Twist and Shout. But if I want to hear some Bob Marley, I want to up my vibration, what do I need to do? I need to actually take the needle off the groove, take that piece of vinyl record off and put another one on. It's not just a swipe of the thumb. It requires it's a delicate operation. You know, you, don't, you can easily damage and scratch your record. So you've got to do it with a little bit of awareness. And I think this is the same with these habitual grooves we get into. It's not a swipe of the thumb. It actually requires effortful presence. But I know I want to listen to Bob Marley, for example. I know I want to elevate my vibration. So when I know, yeah, actually, what song do I want to sing to the world today? What beautiful movement would I like to experience in the orchestra of my being. Can I start playing my own unique symphony and contribute to a greater harmony in life instead of playing the same old tune? Which yeah, is a, it's a, it's a fine old song, but you know, there is, music has vaster possibilities to offer me. Life has vaster possibilities to offer me. I have vaster possibilities. I could give back to this gift of life. So, it's great to be reminded that through the ages, loads and loads of human beings have made efforts to remember that themselves and to invite others to remember that too. Yeah, for sure. One thing I think I feel like it's coming from this time as well is it's about, there's an element of finding our tribe and building community and being surrounded by that rather than you know the way most of us will live we live in a could be a, it's funny if you live in a city center in a block of flats you could have hundreds of people within a few feet of you yet you don't know them from adam mm -hmm. and um but then most streets again as well you know we come home we close our doors you know one thing that did actually come out of last year is we really connected with all our neighbors it was amazing you know we connected with about 30 households we have this shared WhatsApp group. We invite, do stuff. If someone's baking something, they'll drop it off. If someone needs to help us, you know, it's beautiful to see it. It builds that mm -hmm. thing. Um, but for me, it's about um, cultivating that even more and taking that to the next level. Um, one thing I've spoken about a bit in this is potentially being part of a community, living within community. Mm -hmm. There's a place up in Lancaster, which has got a, a eco um 
co-housing and they all live in their own home, but there's a shared space in the center that mm-hmm. they come and connect. Like for instance, me and Ruth now are raising our daughter and because of the situation, it's basically down to me and Ruth. And it is for most families. And then it's often families even hand over that raising to someone else to do, whether it's grandparents or caregivers or a school, however it is. But what was really nice about those co-housing spaces that we seen and visited was how all the families interconnected and all the kids played to each other. And yeah. I think it talks about it takes a village to raise a child. And yeah. that's how it would have been. I think going back, we would have lived in community hunter-gatherer times of around about 150 would have been about the threshold Mm-hmm. that's when you kind of will know everyone there'll be yeah. all the different elders and something as well at the moment as well I know I'm kind of spittering off a little bit on things but how um, we need to regain elders need to come back to the forefront of our you know our society rather than just being considered once they get past a certain age like there's a lack of respect into that maybe not so much in other cultures India in the east but generally they kind of can get ignored and really not forgetting how much wisdom there is so living in community and living with all them generations and and allowing takes the pressure off parents just to feel like they have to do everything and think about i think i talked about it in or what you what the first podcast that we had was about for me you embody becoming a whole human being and seeing people who live in community that gives a space for more people to become whole human beings rather than feel like there's something missing in them and they have to go and look for it or they have to find someone else to be in their life to make them feed that bit that's missing it allows that and i think there's more i would love to think that's what's happened this past year people are really reflecting on their lives and going what is the point of me working all them hours going in that trajectory on the hamster wheel um of life you know in the rat race i use this term a few times i heard someone said even if you win the rat race you're still a rat so do you want to be a rat you know um or do you want to go down a different path and realize have we talked about what are the things that we cherish each day what do you remember um so yeah i don't know why i've gone off on that i'll tell you what i want to touch on a little bit and this it ties into you talking about sovereignty and us reclaiming our sovereignty and i've heard this term more recently from someone like charles eisenstein and he would talk about us to reclaim the commons Mm -hmm. we have for centuries been um had our land our water our food taken from us partitioned and just um then divvied out like for instance the amount of people that live in poverty, but look, there's, have you ever gone to a supermarket and there's never been an abundance of food overflowing? There is not a supply issue, you know, well, sorry, there's not a, a growing issue at the moment. There's literally a supply issue of where that goes mm. and the amount that gets wasted, you know, no one should go without food. And I, I often think about that. I had someone on a podcast a while ago who was talking about potentially us living in a money-free society at some point and what it will take. Um, and um, and with the with the food element and, and the water, it's like that 
that that is a right of a human. Like we're the only, appear to be the only only species on the planet that has to pay to just step foot foot on it. Mm-hmm. Now, the birds, you know, all plant, you know, animal kingdom. It's just there. It's theirs, you know. And if we can get back now, there's eight billion of us, so it's going to be a bit of a challenge. But I think there's probably many billions that probably live like that a little bit in the third world, what are considered to be third world countries anyway. The the West might look at them to think, oh, they need to come up to our standards. But really, what what how how's that standard helping the world? Helping, we've seen, you know. So yeah, I think. This for me, Rob, as you're speaking, I'm, it's kind of like that faulty paradigm. And it's maybe you know this old story. There's lots of versions of it. I've heard one. It's like it's an American businessman is down somewhere in Mexico. And is he goes fishing? Out, yeah, he goes out fishing. Yeah. And yeah, please stop. And so he, he's, <laughs> the guide tells him, yeah, get up early tomorrow, meet me there. I'll take you out in the speedboat. We'll go and catch some fish. You get to see, you know, you get to see all the underwater life. It's going to be a clear morning. Sea is great at the moment. So off they go. And so he has his nice diving, fishing trip. He comes back to the beach and he sees the local fishermen returning to shore. It's still morning time, like, you know, maybe it's 10 in the morning. And they're packing up for the day. And this wealthy American businessman is like, excuse me, but what are you doing? And the guy says, oh, well, we've finished for the day. So I'm going to have a little rest here. And then I'm going to go home and have some fresh fish for lunch with my family. And then I'll play with my kids a bit and have a siesta. And, and then I'll probably go for a walk, like do play with my kids a bit more. And then I'm going to go down to the, uh, you know, down to the local taverna and I'll have a you know, tequila and I'll play the guitar with my mates. And then I'll be down here early tomorrow morning. Uh, we'll go out again. And, and the American businessman, Whoa, 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 wait, wait a minute. But, but I've just been out there. There's so much fish here. It's amazing fishing. Why don't you go back again? Like, you can, you can finish at 10 o'clock. How many hours were you out? You could easily catch twice as much. And then in a year, you'd be able to buy a bigger boat. And in two years, you'd be able to buy two more boats. And then before long, you'd be able to have a fleet. And then you could move your headquarters to, you know, to Mexico City or even to L.A., and then you could list your company on the stock market. And, you know, and he tells him this whole, you know, Harvard Business School fantasy. Like this growth, 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 yeah. And then the, the fisherman says to him, why would I do that? Why would I want to do that? And he said, well, think about it. You know, then you could retire and you could come to some, you could retire some beautiful place on the beach, yeah. And then you could, you know, just, you know, well, you could go out fishing whenever you wanted to and uh, have time with your family. And and then as he's saying it, the American businessman comes and then the fisherman says, you mean I could do what I do already? And then the American businessman goes, hmm, and kind of walks off thinking, hmm, maybe there's a lesson here for me. But this idea, you know, like, if we just, um, yoga is very practical. We work with what is. And you know, I think this whole like speculating on things and investing in things that we have no connection to, 
It's a very strange behavior. Whereas to really care for the land that we are part of. So my hope is that we will, I think it's happening all over the world, we will as a species enter into much more what might be called a right relationship or healthy relationship with, like you said, the commons, which means the space of our ideas in relation to ourselves and others and our environment. And how we, you know, like I often say this when I'm teaching is that we live in this situation where we have economia, the management of the home or the resources, without ecologia. There's no real understanding of the resources. So we're exploiting resources for this perpetual growth and these figures on a chart or these numbers on a screen in a bank account that don't recognize the actual reality of the ecosphere and its munificence and how we can live quite simple. We can live, um, there's a, such a thing as simple luxury, you know, to just to enjoy the fresh air and the fresh food, real food, <laughs> clean water, companionship, and making our own entertainment as well, even I would say, you know, it's, you know, some of the things that I cherish most, I like singing, I like, like for me, human culture, let's gather around a fire, let's sing together, let's tell stories, let's share stories, like you were saying, we're about different generations. I've been in situations in India at, at festivals where you've got the, everybody, I, it's like a big party and there's been, it's a special celebration day. So for example, my teacher's teacher, Swami Laksmanju, this great Kashmiri master, the anniversary of his death, there's a big fire ceremony. And after the full day of ceremony in the evening, it's like the after party and people gather and people are singing. And so the grandfather comes and he shares this song that he composed, which is his devotion to his guru and it's just it's so beautiful and he just yeah, he's streaming with tears as he's singing it and he's just full of like just wow effulgence and then his granddaughter comes out and his granddaughter's 12 and all the grandparents turn to this young girl and then this young girl starts just dropping this wisdom and everybody's spellbound and this is the idea that the young ones, the kids, they're going to have wisdom that we would never imagine because then they haven't been infected with the same collective of ideas that got thrust on us when we were there. It's all changed a bit now. The work we've done has allowed them to access this new level of awareness. And the old people, the people who were there working out the challenges that allowed us to come to those perspectives we've got, I'm speaking of us in the middle around our 40s, They've got so much wisdom to offer us. And if we can actually get together and realize, wow, we can each actually share something useful. There's such possibility just for, for, you know, for human beings just here now. And this is like, like gathering in circle. This is something that I also really hope may happen more in a country like the United Kingdom where people, in my opinion, having grown up here and lived in different countries, we're a little bit closed here, a little bit. Uh, Northern Europe, colder climates, people tend to be a bit more reserved, a bit more living indoors. But to actually gather in a circle, you know, like when we gather in circle, one of the principles of some of the groups that I know who do this, 
when we gather in a circle at the round table, we're all equal. And truth is in the center. And none of us can see the whole picture. But we can all offer something unique that helps us all expand our understanding. We can all see things that others can't. So if we come together like that, amazing things are possible. Yes, they are. And I absolutely love I love your storytelling ability. I can, I'd love to be around a campfire with you. I, to be honest, this is our campfire now at the moment, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the people listening in are, are with us as well. You know, it's just as much as me and you are here. Um, but yeah, I love, uh, you know, something about something so amazing about story and it captures our imagination. And it's actually interesting, Rob, because right now, I'm working a lot with story in my teaching work I've been doing. I've been doing a, a course on Indian mythology and I'm doing another one now. So basically the last two months and these next two months is very much focused on that. And in the last course, there was a lady from Scotland who hadn't, she'd never done a call for me before. And at the end she was saying like, wow, you know, when I started, I was a little bit, I wasn't sure because I knew that a lot of people had studied a lot before and it was new for me. But she said, oh. and then as we, I just realized every week with the stories, how they can speak to each of us in a different way. And it invites this non-linear learning. And I think I've always liked story, but the way she expressed it was so beautiful and powerful for me to realize, yeah, that's the magic. It's like the story speaks to us again and again in a slightly different way. It's always fresh. If it's a perennially valid story, and in Sanskrit there's the word Purana, and it means, one of the things it means is it's perennially valid. So these stories that survive, they survive because they stay relevant. But also they, we're able to learn things in this non-linear way. And I think that's so important for the challenges that we're facing now because one of my friends said something really, I thought this is, she's a very wise woman. She said, this is sometime last autumn, she says, there is no answer to 2020. That is the lesson. We have to learn to be much, much more relaxed in uncertainty. We have to remember that uncertainty is the nature of the human experience because our minds, brilliant tools though they are, are nowhere near <laughs> capable of experiencing the totality of existence. So anytime we try to grasp everything and pin it down and put it into compartments, these can be very useful things to help us navigate reality. But we have to be careful not to get trapped and thinking that we've got it all sorted out. Whereas with a story, it can trigger these insights that can help us kind of almost um, come to a more integrated understanding of things that we might not know all the little bits and uh, cogs of, but we can then relate it practically to the field of our own life. Does that make sense, Rob? Like, it does. It does indeed. Yeah. 100%. Um, and I'm with you. Yeah. And as things begin to hopefully open up without restriction, um, we can we can come together in yeah. you know more and and have 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 these conversations and hug each other you know that's yeah. the, uh, you know just i think about one thing that's been great for last year 
And that's why I can think we can see it's such a blessing. And I think 2020, I said it in a recent podcast, will be potentially the turning point, the, the moment that we'll look back on when everything changed. And in 10, 20, 30 years, it's like that was the reason, that was the catalyst for us taking that fork in the road. You know, we, I like to think someone talks about this in terms of there's all these different timelines and potentials. We're on these train tracks. And all the train tracks are leaving the station at the moment and they're going <laughs> off. And do you want to, you know, and I think that's why there's a certain element at the moment. There's so, we're seeing so much stuff and information, potential future versions of reality, which could some, some people might consider like a dystopian authoritarian kind of regime. Or is there another way? And I think more people are going to go, actually, no, I'm getting on the other train. <laughs> but thank you for showing that to me but no that is not a kind of world that i want to choose to live in and yeah. if we can take that path off and I, I would like to think we're being given that invitation now to choose the kind of life we want the kind of people that we want in our lives the kind of way we want to live and what we want to do in the direction to go in um and i would like to think with that more reflection time that we've had we can we can we can choose that yeah, definitely. And I think you know, my, my hope is that, and I sense this as well, is that more people are re recognizing as, as some things were taken away, they're like, well, yeah, well, what do I really want to do? How do I want to spend my energy? How do I want to allot my attention, my resources? Like, I didn't, I've not seen this documentary, The Social Dilemma. I've heard various people speaking about it talking and one of my friends who's a psychiatrist she said the thing that it emphasized for her above anything else was just how precious human attention is and so she was saying it reminded her it's like how do i allot my presence how do i allot my attention and when i directed towards that which actually i do value then my life becomes, as it were, more valuable. I cherish it more. And so we can be the architects of a different type of existence. But it's about how we, how we work with what is. And I mean, this is the, you know, it's, the yoga teachings have been around for thousands of years. And they were, you know, thoroughly peer review, empirically tested over many, many generations when they were set down in the classical forms that we've now been around for a couple of thousand years. And they tell us, you know, you are the sovereign. So get up, stand up, claim that responsibility. But that takes tremendous courage and you will falter and you will stumble. So you've got to have faith, not a blind faith. You've got to cultivate that faith by cultivating self-trust. And how do we cultivate self-trust? by actually enacting the longings of our conscience, you know, like acting in ways that we feel congruent, that my heart, my mind, my gut, they all say yes. And when I act like that, how do I sleep at the end of the day? So someone to talk about, it's like, you know, the Bhagavad Gita, this most treasured text, the old tradition, it's set on the battlefield. <laughs> and isn't your role of peace? But how to be victorious in the battle of life. The battle is between those parts of ourselves that would kind of get in a groove that isn't actually honoring the gift of our life, that isn't moving us in the direction of those deep longings. 
And there was parts of ourselves that would muster the courage to say, wait a minute, actually that old way isn't serving me anymore. Time for me to do the work of climbing out of the valley and doing something fresh, doing something that is building on what I've learned from all my previous experience. And that takes effort. It takes will and it takes commitment, takes uh, diligence, determination. But when we do it, we can move from the lose-lose situation to the win-win situation. Like lose-lose is when I'm putting all my attention on one day, when I get that, well, tomorrow never comes, you know? The win-win situation is like, if I heed my conscience, I can't lose. Like Krishna in the Gita, the teacher in the Gita says, you know, just a little effort in this direction will protect you from all fear. Because if we muster the courage to act on conscience, then if we get what we hope for, we enjoy it with a clear conscience. And if we don't get what we hope for, well, we sleep in peace because we know we acted authentically, we did our best and we can learn from it. So I think this is, it's very real. It's challenging, but it's also its own reward. And the more we practice it, the more we realize, okay, yeah, it is its own reward. Yeah, I can get down on myself. I can get dejected. I can feel full on. I can feel pressed down. But then if I just, oh yeah, start practicing gratitude again, start inviting a bit more um, positive energy, start realizing, well, I do have this, I can do this. New possibilities emerge. And it's my own visceral experience. My mind witnesses this reality. And that's where the transformation becomes real. Amazing. I'm kind of feeling that feels like an amazing way to sort of maybe bring the, the podcast to a little bit of a close on that one. Okay. James, thank you. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Have a, a virtual hug, man. Yeah. Yeah. that's my interview um with james um again i um i found that really nourishing um it's just what i needed at this time i think some of us can feel isolated we can feel we're not getting the companionship the friendship that we can need so for me that was great for me to hear that and hopefully it helped you with some of the stuff we were talking about and inspired you made you feel a bit more positive and upbeat um about the current situation in life and if you've enjoyed this podcast, please share it with a friend. That would go a long way um, to help getting this podcast out to more people. You can also leave me a review on Apple. Again, that will help. And if you're feeling particularly generous, you can become a member on my Patreon page, which would, uh, for the price of less than the price of a cup of coffee each month, helps to support me and what I'm doing to continue to put these interviews out to, with inspiring people. So anyway, I'm going to close out this um this podcast with a with a song from james normally i have the theme tune but instead for my podcast instead i'm gonna finish with one of james's songs which is called remembering so i hope you enjoy it until next time have a good one remember 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 you are not alone remember 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 we're all children from the same home. The earth, she is our mother. The soil, the sea, the hole. The sun, our father. 
is the very light of your soul. We all come from the same place. We all share the same earth. May we walk here with kindness. Bring to life the gifts of our birth. The earth, she is our mother. May we walk here with grace. Make all our actions sacred, lending beauty to her face. Remember what we're here for. Remember why we came. Remembering our real identity beyond any name. No human being is an island. Our actions, they reach wide. Though we may like to blind eye, there's really no place to hide because we're all of us connected. We're all part of the whole. We are in this together. Rise, stand or fall. We all walk the same earth under the same sun. We all breathe the same air. Really, we're all one. And the earth, she is our mother. She wants us all to thrive. Working all together for the good of all that's alive. Now I've seen some people thinking, I'll just take care of myself. But we seem to be forgetting the nature of that real self, because we're each a microcosm, a conglomeration of cells, a living cooperative, functioning pretty well. And all the parts belong to one whole, isolated, they won't stand. But when we come together, we begin to understand that the earth, she is our mother, the soil, the sea, the sky, the sun, the light of consciousness, without those rays we die. The earth, she is our mother, the soil, the sea, the whole, the sun, our father, is the very light of your soul. So remember, 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 you are not alone. Remember, 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 we're all children from the same home.